usually start off these broadcasts with some variant of the question, what is Bob Dylan? Because although it's a little bit of a joke since the expected question is, who is Bob Dylan? I actually believe that it's worthwhile to try and figure out what Bob Dylan's life and work is and what it represents. But we're in the middle of a pandemic, all of us, the whole world. And when's the last time there was a crisis that literally had the potential to affect every single living human? I guess climate change was the last crisis, but this is a little different. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, the crisis will have abated. And this isn't going to turn into a pandemic podcast. But it does occur to me that when our absurd commentators call this event the Great Equalizer... What they're referring to is that no person, high or low, is immune to the possibility of getting sick. But really, what might be a more human and humane way to look at this equalizing moment is that whatever fear and pain and uncertainty might be experienced by some of us is something that sadly is experienced every single day on this earth by millions and millions of other people. And that was true before this pandemic and will be true long after. I still think it's worthwhile to listen to and think about Bob Dylan, so here we go. This is episode 14 of a Bob Dylan primer, Modern Times, Olden Times. Amazingly, at least to me, in the midst of this very moment, there was some extremely exciting news on the Dylan front. He released a new song on April 26, 2020, at midnight. The song is nearly 17 minutes long, the longest song Dylan's ever recorded, and it's called Murder Most Foul. And I think there's a lot to say about the song, but I'm going to hold off saying anything more right now. If you haven't heard the song, definitely give it a listen as soon as you have 20 minutes free. But I'd like to let a little more dust settle before I comment on it. Also, I think the timing of the release is significant, so I think it'll be better to talk about it as we draw closer to the present in our broadcast chronology. We left off in the last episode as Dylan appeared at the dawn of the new millennium, with a new album released on 9-11, September 11, 2001, called Love and Theft. There followed a five-year gap before Dylan's next album, but it's not like Dylan was getting lazy. As a matter of fact, from 2001 to the present, Dylan's work has been continuing to appear in our lives in a pretty consistent fashion, be it the release of movies like Mastin Anonymous, the documentary No Direction Home, or the artsy biopic I'm Not There. There has also been a pretty steady stream of bootleg series releases every year or two, and Dylan has stayed out on the road for a great part of all these years. We've been pretty lucky. At the end of episode 13, I mentioned we'd be getting into Dylan winning a big prize, probably the biggest prize you can win, but in fact, we're not going to get there until the next episode, probably. Just too much to talk about first. In 2004... Dylan released a quasi-memoir called Chronicles, Volume 1. I say quasi-memoir because many people have questioned the accuracy of some of the details reported by Dylan. We'll get to that in a minute. 
Chronicles is a wonderful read. It's very evocative and funny, and I think gives a pretty clear picture of Dylan's process. The book is basically divided into three long segments, each focusing on a different period of Dylan's life and work. The first section deals with 1961, the second section deals with 1970, while the third section is centered around 1989. And apparently, the project started when Dylan worked on liner notes for the reissues of three albums, his first record, Bob Dylan, which came out in 62, and then New Morning and Oh Mercy, which came out in 1970 and 1989, respectively. So he started writing these liner notes, reminiscing about the times surrounding the recording of these three albums, and he basically couldn't stop himself and wrote enough material for a book. So it's a funny experience reading the book, because it seems like you're reading a memoir of Dylan's entire life slash career. But in fact, it's just a kind of word microscope pointed at these three years. I want to talk a little more about the accuracy or veracity of Chronicles and use that as a jump-off point to talk a little bit about Dylan's use of already existing texts and musical forms in his songs. Certain writers and critics have not prophesized, but pointed out factual inconsistencies in Chronicles, and also noticed entire passages that seem to have been lifted or lightly adapted from other people's work, including Marcel Proust and Mark Twain. Of course, as Francis Coppola often said, steal from the best. People can make what they will of Dylan's work. If you want to call him a copycat and a thief regarding some of his work, that's up to you. I don't see it that way, but I also don't want to justify Dylan's work methods. For me, it comes down to, do I relate to the material? Does it hit me in a real way? And do I feel the work is authentic? Just to talk about authentic for a minute, think about Starry Night by Van Gogh. He didn't make up the stars in that painting. He copied them from the night sky, didn't he? But no one ever accused Vincent of stealing the sky for his work. He looked up and translated what he saw onto canvas. And that's kind of how I feel about Dylan's or any other artist's use of the world in their work. In terms of what is authentic, I think that's a distinction we each have to make for ourselves. One person's authentic might mean very little to someone else, so... In Chronicles, there's a long section devoted to Dylan reminiscing about seeing a musical review of the songs of Bertolt Brecht in New York City in 1961 or 62. And Dylan writes about how he was knocked out by the production and especially by the song called Pirate Jenny. And he describes what an impact that song had on his songwriting. As far as I can tell, in all of the interviews Dylan's given in the 50-plus years since he saw that show, there's only one mention of Brecht, and that was in a 1965 interview where the interviewer asked Dylan, how about Brecht? Have you uh, read much of him? And Dylan responds, no, but I've read him. Now, I have little doubt that Dylan saw a production of Brecht's songs back then, as he describes in the book, and I believe that Dylan was knocked out by the songs he heard. But there's also some story building, some act of creation by Dylan relating the impact of Pirate Jenny on him since it doesn't fit with our reality that he would have never mentioned the song up until Chronicles if it really had that sudden and that big of an impact on him in 1961. So does that mean Dylan is bullshitting or lying? Of course not. 
This is how he tells his stories, his story, and of course, his songs, too. Personally, I'm still amazed at how enjoyable Chronicles is to read. It really paints a wonderful picture of Dylan's thoughts and experiences, and the best way to approach it, similar to watching Dylan's movies, is to see it as a kind of song. Speaking of authentic, one of the other things Dylan did in 2004 is lend the song Lovesick to the Victoria's Secret lingerie company to use in a commercial. I say lend, but I'm sure he got paid for the song's use. Not only that, but Dylan appeared in the commercial as well, which also featured some models in lingerie set against the gorgeous scenery of Venice, Italy. Some people got pretty upset and couldn't believe Dylan was using his music to sell fancy underwear. But seeing the commercial now, 15 plus years after it was released, is pure entertainment. No explanation or apologies needed. I still can't figure out quite how the marketing people thought that Dylan's dark croaking on Lovesick would sell more underwear, but what do I know about advertising? I put a link to the ad on our website. In the fall of 2005, another big chunk of Dylan landed on our collective screens, and that was the feature-length documentary directed by Martin Scorsese called No Direction Home. The film is a pretty in-depth look at the time from when Dylan arrived in Greenwich Village in 1961 up to the motorcycle incident at Woodstock in 1966. And the film is a revelation for several reasons. One is the superb quality of the archival footage, especially the restored 16mm color film shot by D.A. Pennebaker during the 1966 tour. There's also a lot of interview material of Dylan himself, being interviewed by his longtime manager, Jeff Rosen, where Dylan is pretty relaxed and generous with his comments. Also, there are some terrific interviews of people who rolled with Dylan, including Allen Ginsberg, Joan Baez, and folk blues singer Dave Van Ronk. The Van Ronk interview is particularly poignant, for one, because he's gone too soon and we miss him, but also because Van Ronk's clear-eyed, no-BS intelligence and truth-telling cuts through the sometimes too complimentary tone of the documentary. I know, calling the kettle black, but what the hell. In 2006, a satellite radio company announced that Bob Dylan would be hosting a weekly radio show to be called Theme Time Radio Hour. And the show debuted in May 2006 and featured Dylan as the DJ announcing an hour's worth of songs, and that episode all revolving around the theme weather. So on that first episode, there were songs like The Wind Cries Mary by Jimi Hendrix and Didn't It Rain by Sister Rosetta Tharp. And each week featured a different theme, with Dylan introducing the songs and often spinning some historical background or a funny anecdote into the mix. The sound design harkened back to the golden era of radio, 1940s, but the songs spanned from the early days of recordings in the 1920s right up to the present day. So you might hear a Louis Armstrong record bumped up next to a song by Reba McIntyre. And at first, most people and pundits and critics and just human listeners were kind of amused by the venture and thought it was quaint and charming. But, as is so often the case with Dylan's work, and especially his ventures away from songwriting and performing, it slowly became obvious that this theme time radio project was a far more ambitious and consequential undertaking. (laughs) 
By the time Dylan hung up the headphones in April 2009, the series had broadcast 104 episodes ranging from trains to divorce to cops and robbers and almost everything else but the kitchen sink. And in the process of making these shows, Dylan not only showed us, his public, the vastness of his musical interests, but also I think it gave him a chance to stick his nose and ears back into some old music and blow the dust off, which I have to think had a strong impact on his songwriting and his choices of material to cover live and on record. If for nothing else, this series is to be remembered for the clever and evocative film noir-inspired intros, which were huskily voiced by the actress Ellen Barkin. Also in 2006, Dylan released a new album, his first in five years. It's called Modern Times, 10 new songs, although every song harkens back to an older blues or folk tradition, musically and lyrically. Still, all 10 songs are strong, with two possible standouts. Those might be Working Men's Blues and Nettie Moore. Nettie Moore is an achingly beautiful, sad lament. Hard to say exactly what Dylan has in mind with the song, but listening to it, the emotional impact comes through. Maybe not loud and clear, but soft and unflinching. Modern Times is a very listenable record, beautifully sequenced and with a lot of mysterious meat on the bone. The discussion and controversy about Dylan's borrowing, stealing, getting inspired by other people's work reached kind of a fever pitch after Modern Times was released. I can't help but laugh when I read all the references that people have uncovered. Most of the songs on the album share a title or lyric or melody with one or more old tunes. And apparently Dylan was deep into the heretofore somewhat obscure Civil War poet named Henry Timrod, who was known as the Poet Laureate of the Confederacy. How about that? So there are a bunch of lines on modern times that are pretty much pulled straight out of Timrod's verses. And Dylan didn't stop there. He kept going back, and he went way back, all the way to the early Roman poet Ovid. And there are a few lines on the album that seem like maybe, just just maybe, they were appropriated from some Ovid. Case in point, in the song Working Man's Blues Number 2, Dylan sings, No one can claim that I took up arms against you. And in the English translation of an Ovid poem, the lyric goes, No one can ever claim that I took up arms against you. Even the photo on the album cover of Modern Times had been used before. It's a 1947 image by a photographer named Ted Croner called Taxi New York at Night. The image was used earlier as a cover of a single released by the band Luna for their 1995 single Hedgehog, according to the all-knowing internet. It was also the first album cover in quite a while that didn't feature an image of Dylan himself. I feel like I've spoken enough about Dylan's alleged transgressions when it comes to poaching old melodies and lyrics, and though I don't want to be an apologist for Dylan, I do think borrowing or being inspired by or whatever you want to call it is a critical part of Dylan's method, especially starting with his work in the 21st century. I still think the work that comes out at the end of the line is utterly unique, but that's just one man's opinion. 
The context within which Modern Times was released isn't marked by anything spectacular in terms of Dylan's career or the world at large. In other words, it wasn't 9-11, we didn't have a new president or a new millennium, Dylan wasn't launching a comeback. The album just came out after kind of a long gap between records. But the audience seemed to be in a more accepting place than they'd been in years past, which is good because there's a lot to chew on with this record. The songs are very listenable, enjoyable, but they're also confounding. Working Man's Blues number two seems to have some kind of political or populist content, but then buried in the lyric are lines like these. Old memories of you to me have clung. You've wounded me with your words. Gonna have to straighten out your tongue. It's all true. Everything you've heard. One of the gifts of modern times is that it raises Dylan's vocal phrasing into high relief. I haven't talked much about Dylan's phrasing because it seems even more subjective than other so-called standards of singing, but Dylan's phrasing has always been his secret weapon. I saw where someone wrote, if you don't think Dylan is a great singer, try and sing along with him. And though I'm not sure that creating lyric lines that are nearly impossible to sing along with is a mark of a great singer, it is true that Dylan's supremely idiosyncratic phrasing is one of the bottomless wells of joy that comes along with listening to him. And for some reason on Modern Times, almost every song on the record has memorable phrasing, starting right off in the first song on the album, Thunder on the Mountain. In the second verse, Dylan sings, I was thinking about Alicia Keys. And then two lines later, he sings, I'm wondering where in the world Alicia Keys could be. And beyond being an absolutely hilarious auditory double-take moment, no one could phrase that line the way Dylan does. Then, in 2008, Dylan released Volume 8 of his bootleg series, subtitled Telltale Signs. And it's worth mentioning here because it covers material left over from the recording sessions from Dylan's previous four albums, those being Oh Mercy, World Gone Wrong, Time Out of Mind, and Modern Times, along with material from a few other sessions and live tracks from this period. And I gotta say, every single issue of the bootleg series which is up to volume 15 at this point, is just fantastic. And they represent a cornerstone of Dylan's recorded output, deserving almost as much attention as the standard album releases. Telltale Signs is particularly juicy because it contains a bunch of new songs, never heard before in any form, and there are a handful of tunes in the set that match anything Dylan's done in his profoundly fertile post-1980s period. I'll just mention one song here called Cross the Green Mountain, which Dylan wrote for the soundtrack to the Civil War movie called Gods and Generals. It feels different than anything Dylan's ever done, but it's terrific and epic, and it'll give you goosebumps. I put the entire Telltale Sign set on the Spotify playlist for this episode. In April 2009, another new Dylan album appeared, without too much fanfare called Together Through Life. For the second album in a row, this record has a black-and-white photograph as a cover. This one an older image by well-known photographer Bruce Davison. Two other things about this album from The Jump are that all the songs but one were co-written with Robert Hunter, the late great lyricist who wrote the words to most of 
the Grateful Dead's best songs. And also, there's the fact that this album came about after Dylan was asked by French film director Olivier Dahan to contribute a song to a movie he was directing called My Own Love Song, which starred Renee Zellweger. Apparently, Dylan wrote one song for the movie and then just kept going until he had enough songs for a whole album, a lot of which ended up on Together Through Life. The My Own Love Song soundtrack contains five songs from Together Through Life, plus a bunch of shorter instrumental pieces by Dylan as well. So, Together Through Life, Dylan's voice is especially croaky throughout most of this album. The songs are good. There's some Tejano music with accordion backup, some Cajun-influenced tunes, and some straight raunchy blues numbers. As far as I can tell, the collaboration with Hunter seems pretty effortless. The two were old friends, and Hunter and Dylan previously collaborated on two other songs from the Down in the Groove album, Silvio and the Ugliest Girl in the World. Together Through Life is a decent record, but there's not too much on it to get too excited about. Dylan, in this later incarnation of the new millennium, started to really lock into some new forms and deliver some very exciting stuff, and Together Through Life just doesn't carry the same power as a lot of the other 21st century work, for me. I glanced through some reviews of the album when it was released, and some smart people have wonderful things to say, and some think it compares favorably to modern times. So there you have it. In 2009, Dylan actually releases a second album of all new tracks, but these are not original songs, nor are they covers of old folk or blues artists. This album was called Christmas in the Heart, released in October 2009, and filled with 15 tracks of mostly classic Christmas songs with a few oddballs thrown in like tinsel on the tree. Now, this is not an example of Dylan stepping out into new or unknown territory. Hundreds, if not thousands of other musical artists have released versions of classic Christmas music. But Dylan being Dylan, this offering of Yuletide cheer is one of the wildest holiday albums ever. You can't claim Dylan was just trying to make a buck, as all the proceeds from the record went to various charities, but I think Dylan did get a lot out of this exploration. It was another look through another prism at the music of his youth. I imagine that Christmas in the 1950s in Hibbing, Minnesota was quite something, and the music of this record feels like a tribute to that time. The wackiest track on the album is Must Be Santa, in which Dylan delivers the hoary chestnut as an out-of-control polka delivered at punk rock speed. The only thing quirkier than the song is the video Dylan did for it, which I posted on the links page of the website for episode 14. If you haven't seen it, pour yourself a large eggnog and have a look. I won't spoil the surprise of the insanity or inanity, except to say that the stringy blonde wig worn by Dylan is worth the price of admission. Speaking of stringy blonde wigs, in May 2011, Dylan turned 70 years old. He played three concerts in China, his first ever, in the springtime, and then toured Europe, playing some festivals, and then the States for about 30 shows, and then back to Europe in the fall. In January of 2012, 
Dylan went into a small studio in Santa Monica, California, and started recording a new album of original material. Ten songs written by Dylan, with one co-written by Robert Hunter. The song they wrote is the kickoff track for the new album that was released in September of 2012, called Tempest. The song they wrote, Hunter and Dylan, is called Duquesne Whistle, and it starts off the record with 32 instrumental bars of a jaunty little tune that sounds almost like it's coming out of an old transistor radio in your grandpa's sink while he's getting his morning shave. Then the drums and guitar kick in and we're on a rickety train, hurtling through the countryside with Dylan serving as a singing conductor, crazy as a loon but loaded with coal and burning inspiration. Just to show how transfixing this music can be, I had the album cranked up while writing these notes and left the hot water running full blast in the kitchen sink for about 20 minutes. I really, really like this recording of Duquesne Whistle, and Dylan commissioned yet another wild video movie to accompany the song. Check it out on YouTube, and I've also included a link to the video on our website. As I roll around with these 21st century Dylan albums of original material, between Love and Theft and Tempest is about a decade. We've got four records, Love and Theft, Modern Times, Together Through Life, and Tempest. These four are similar in many ways, with all four drawing heavily on older pop music forms and lyric content sucked in from all over the map. Of course, the four records also have significant differences but they're solid representations of Dylan's work during this span, and they don't sound like anyone else out there who's making music. They're quite singular, especially when taken together. As I think about these records and try to rate one above the other or think about the greater or lesser significance of one or more, it occurs to me that even more than usual, trying to think about these albums in some kind of hierarchical or even critical structure is probably a waste of time. If you asked me today which of these albums I like the best, I'd probably say I enjoy listening to Modern Times and Tempest slightly more than I enjoy listening to Love and Theft and Together Through Life. And if I had to pick one album today, I'd choose Tempest, but that has everything to do with my own internal state at the moment and nothing really to do with the relative musical or lyrical merits of each. So Tempest wins for today. What's important, I think, and what I think these albums can teach us again, is that the thing to strive for is to listen closely. Whatever that means, it could mean taking a walk with AirPods, it could mean sitting in the dark by yourself with a record player, it could be listening to the car radio while barreling down the highway, or it could be listening while dancing wildly with a stranger you've just met. We need to listen to music without an ulterior motive, especially not to figure out the meaning. And Dylan is doing his part to bring us to that state of mind. I'm not anti-meaning or anti-analysis in any way, but music communicates through being heard, not analyzed. Who knows what the significance of Tempest is? Who cares? The way to give it meaning, that is, the way to understand it, is to experience the music, and that is, to listen to it. Today, more than ever before, listening might be the most important activity we can do in our lives. I don't know how I got up on that particular soapbox, but back to the Tempest record. I have to say, as I've been listening to the album repeatedly and closely for this episode, it really feels strong. 
I like the sound of this album the best of all of Dylan's post-2000 music. It's a record that you really want to play loud, like the Stones records from the early 70s. I'll just touch on a few songs on the record. Tin Angel is like a mashup of Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts with some old noir classic like Out of the Past. It's a tale of betrayal through and through and Dylan's message, his eternal and undying message, is that knowing what's good and true as well as what's evil and false is both essential and impossible. And that's the paradox that's threaded through much of Dylan's early songs but one which moved out front and center in most of Dylan's later work. Another song on Tempest is Pay in Blood, possibly the purest expression of Dylan's croak. His vocal cords here have turned into a belt sander working over a chunk of decomposed granite. Still, there's something about the groove on this song that I just love. I can listen to it over and over again. Of the ten songs on Tempest, five are longer than seven minutes. And the title track, Tempest, is just shy of 14 minutes long. What's Dylan up to with this latest epic-length ditty? Is this a surrealistic journey like Desolation Row or a shaggy dog ramble like Brownsville Girl or Highlands? It's actually something else. Dylan as historian, albeit a somewhat twisted and poetic historian, concerned more with emotional truth than historical fact. A couple of funny things about Tempest... When the album came out, critics immediately linked the title to Shakespeare, whose last play was The Tempest. And critics wondered if this was Dylan signaling to his audience that this album, Tempest, would be his last. When asked about this, Dylan replied, Shakespeare wrote The Tempest. This album is just called Tempest. Not the same thing. And also, turning to the song Tempest itself... The 14-minute epic, it's a huge telling of a fable, mostly based on the actual sinking of the Titanic. But the Titanic went down in what I'd always heard were calm seas, not a tempest, which of course is a fierce storm. The song, Tempest, contains 45 verses of four lines each, with no chorus. I guess when you've got 45 verses, maybe you don't need a chorus. The verses are a mixture of poetic reportage of the tragic facts of the sinking, woven through with miniature but precise human dramas, detailing moments that play out as the ship is going down. And there's one character who recurs several times during the song, and that's a sleeping watchman who's having a dream, a dream that the Titanic is sinking. A bunch of people and critics take the entire song as a figment of the watchman's dream. I'm not sure I see it that way. To me, it seems that the Watchman is sleeping through the actual sinking while dreaming about it happening, which seems a lot like life, don't you think? What's surprising, or one thing that's surprising, is that Dylan chose not to end this long album with this 14-minute track. After the Titanic has crashed onto the bottom of the sea, with the Watchman still anxiously dreaming the night away, another song begins, called Roll On John, and that is the last song in the album. And it's clearly a tribute to the fallen Beatle, John Lennon. And there are some overt references to both Lennon's biography and also lyrics from Beatles songs. And I find the song very moving, although some people think it's 
maudlin and full of cliches. What I think is interesting about the song, and this applies to several of Dylan's later songs that have a basis in historical fact, is that he usually creates something that extends beyond just a creative retelling of a moment or story. So in Roll On John, there are some super specific references, like Quarrymen, to the Beatles, which was the original name of the group. But then there'll be a verse like this one. Sailing through the trade winds bound for the south, rags on your back just like any other slave. They tied your hands and they clamped your mouth. Wasn't no way out of that deep, dark cave. And for the life of me, I can't guess what that verse might have to do with John Lennon specifically. Still, it builds up the resonance of the song and it's another layer contributing to the overall effect. Roll on John is a heartfelt eulogy by Dylan to the first member of the Holy Triumvirate of rock and roll to have died, which includes Dylan, the Beatles, and the Stones, with the exception, of course, of Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones, who drowned in a swimming pool just after he was asked to leave the group in 1969. As we approach the end of this chunk of broadcasts, I want to encourage you even more strongly to share a link or information about the series with people you think might be interested. There's a Facebook page, and you can just click to listen on pretty much any podcast platform, Apple Music or Spotify or Google Play or Stitcher. Just pull up a stool at your favorite search bar and type in a Bob Dylan primer, and you should find a link. My motivation to expand the audience is partially just ego. It's not financial in any way, as I don't try and monetize this series. But I have the sense that a broader audience up to a point will create a more dynamic resonance between the work that Dylan has created and all the people who've been listening, and also those who will hopefully start listening in the future. Next episode, we'll see Dylan step into the ring with the other great blue-eyed singer of our times, Old Blue Eyes himself, and we'll probably be wrapping up at least this portion of the journey. There are some wonderful surprises coming up in episode 15, and I'm sure you can guess at least one of them. That in 2020, Dylan releases a new song. Not only his longest recorded song ever, but one of the best things he's ever put out. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear some of the music referenced in this broadcast, please check out the public playlist I created on Spotify under the name A Bob Dylan Primer. Also, please visit our website at abobdylanprimer.com to find links to cool videos and other stuff about Bob Dylan, organized separately for each episode. As Dylan sings at the end of Together Through Life, it's all good. <laughs>